before we begin, before we begin, I'm going to give you a science lesson and a history lesson. So uh, first, the science lesson. A tea bag weighs about two grams. Each uh, tea bag has about one and a half grams of tea, and half a gram goes into the actual bag. Now, two grams is two million micrograms. A microgram is a measurement for very tiny masses. A single grain of salt weighs about 300 micrograms. An eyelash weighs about 75. That's such an insignificant mass that you actually need special equipment to measure it. Now imagine 10 micrograms. So less than one-seventh the mass of an eyelash. We're talking about something that if it was on your jacket, you wouldn't notice it. If it was, you know, floating by in the air, you wouldn't see it. Or if it was dissolved in your teacup, you would drink it. And you wouldn't even know that you were drinking it. That's the science lesson. Now here's the history lesson, a very recent history lesson. The Millennium Hotel Mayfair is located in an extremely fashionable part of London. It's right near the U.S. Embassy. And if you'd been in the hotel bar on November 1st, 2006, you'd have seen three Russian men hanging out together. And at least one of them was drinking tea. One of the men, Alexander Litvinenko, drank tea that contained an estimated 10 micrograms of polonium-210, a highly radioactive element. By that evening, he fell ill. He was uh, vomiting and, and had diarrhea uncontrollably. Several days later, he could not walk by himself. He was hospitalized. And on November 22, 2006, he died. He'd been poisoned with an almost untraceable amount of polonium-210. It was a small and insignificant amount, 10 micrograms, and yet it was enough to take his life. And they actually said that upon ingesting it, he swe his sweat was radioactive. So the police could follow the polonium trail all around London. The car that Ahmed Zakayev drove to pick Litvinenko up had to be abandoned because it was so radioactive, all from just 10 micrograms. There were traces of radiation everywhere, in hotel rooms, in cars, on planes, and even on a fax machine. So think about it. An almost untraceable amount of polonium-210 can kill a man and also make it so that he sweats radiation. And we wouldn't have ever known that it was in his system if it hadn't completely destroyed him. And the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, views sin in exactly the same way. We think that small, sin is small and insignificant. We excuse it. We caress it. We cannot see it in each other. And yet, sin is the polonium-210 of the heart. 
The smallest bit of it can ruin us and destroy us. And we will know only too late, only too late, what has happened to us. So Paul urges the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to see sin for what it is and to seek its destruction. So let's look at the passage together, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with the first verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver the man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us as we look together at this passage. Let's pray. Great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that you love us with an everlasting, always and forever love. Father, we pray that you would bring us into truth by the word that you have for us this evening. We pray that you would work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit to the praise of your glorious grace. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to look at the uh, passage that we have before us under three headings. So um, I've, we're going to really work with the text here. So uh, I'm going to say a bunch of different verses, but don't worry, I'll be a faithful guide. Well, hopefully I'll be a faithful guide along the way. So if you look down chapter 5, we have first the seriousness of sin. We see this in verses uh, 1 and 2, but also in verses 6 and 8. Then we see the strict discipline against sin, and this is in verses 2, 3 to 5, 7a, and then 9 to 13. And finally, we have the sacrifice for sin, the sin substitute, which is in the second half of verse 7. So the three main headings are the seriousness of sin, strict discipline against it, and finally, the sacrifice for it. So seriousness, strict discipline, and the sin substitute. 
let's turn first and foremost to the, to the seriousness of sin. Now, before we, we, before we do this, let me kind of, you know, give you a, a light and airy note. Namely, that the Corinthians are apparently rejoicing in the great freedom that they have in Jesus. And that's right and appropriate. And we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 11, that uh, they've been washed, they've been sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And here in chapter 5, he uh, calls them in verse 7, really and truly unleavened. That is, he's talking to a church that is suffering with great sin, and yet there are sincere believers who are rejoicing in the wonderful freedom that they have in Jesus. Nevertheless, by all appearances, they've forgotten the seriousness of sin. They're taking a casual attitude towards it, and Paul calls them arrogant. He does that in verse 2. And he does it again in verse 6. And, uh, and in verse 2, if you look down, he says, Ought you not rather to mourn? So given the circumstances of your church, Paul is saying, you, you ought to be sorrowful. You ought to be sorrowful. Well, why? Why should they be sad? Well, verse 1. Someone in the congregation is dating his stepmother. And let's just get something out of the way. If that describes you tonight, and you're calling yourself a Christian, then you must stop. You cannot be a Christian and have a sexual relationship with your, with your stepmother. But it's not narrow-minded bigotry on Paul's part, is it? He doesn't have a thing against stepmothers. No, it's God's moral law. It's what the Lord tells people in Leviticus 18. And the Roman punishment for incest, just for you history buffs out there, was actually banishment to an island. So Paul is right to say, right here at the start of chapter 5, you are tolerating sin that not even the pagans tolerate. Now, in these Corinthians, instead of being ashamed, are actually quite pleased with themselves. That's, that's the indication that we get, verse 2, and you are arrogant. You can imagine them saying something like, look how tolerant we are. Look how open-minded we Corinthian Christians are. You know, R Roman culture, Roman culture despises men dating their stepmothers, but not us. We, we're more open-minded than that. And Paul will have none of it. He speaks directly against this particular sin. And then he offers a caution against sin generally. And it's a lesson that we should hear. His message is the, to the Corinthians, but it certainly speaks to us today. Paul is very keen that we should see the seriousness of sin. So notice first, he calls sin for what it is. He says this activity is Immoral. He calls it, verse 1, immorality. It's not liberty. It's not freedom of conscience. It's not what two consenting adults do in the privacy of their bedroom. It's sin. And sin is disobedience against God's perfect law. But notice that that's not the only reason why sin is serious. 
Sin is serious because, though hidden, it spreads uncontrollably, uncontrollably in ways that we don't know until after it's just too late. Sin is serious because it's destructive to the church. And the example that that Paul uses, I use Polonium 2.10, but the example that Paul uses is leaven. So if you look down at verse 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And then again in in verse 8, he compares the leaven of malice and evil with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now for those who don't bake bread, and I count myself in your number, uh, leaven is apparently a substance, any substance like yeast, that makes bread rise. And once you've worked it into the dough, it's hard to tell whether or not it's there. But if you bake the dough, and it looks like a flat cracker-like thing, then you know that there was no leaven in it. If, however, the, the dough turns into this big loaf of bread, then there was leaven in the dough. I don't know how cooking works, so it's, this is my best attempt. So, so anyway, the point here is that leaven's hard to see, but you know it in the finished product. You can look at it and tell. And Paul says that sin is just like that. A little bit of leaven can make a whole loaf rise, so too a little bit of sin can ruin a congregation. So sin isn't laughable, it's certainly not commendable, it's a destructive poison that threatens the church, and we must be on guard. So that's our first point, sin is very serious. In fact, sin is so serious that it demands a straightforward response, a response of strict discipline, that's our second point. Paul gets right uh, to the matter in verse 2. Remove this man who's dating his stepmother from your congregation. And in doing so, he gives us clear, sound advice on how to handle a case of church discipline. Notice that though Paul is the apostle, uh, in verse 3, he pronounces judgment on the man dating his stepmother. But then he says in verse 4 that it's the local church's job to administer strict discipline. Paul isn't uh, drafting his papal bull and excommunicating the man uh, by messenger. On the contrary, he's indicating that discipline is a local church matter. And in this instance, Paul calls on the local church to give the strictest discipline a church can give, excommunication. It means that the man is removed from the fellowship of believers. Verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. But excommunication is, uh, uh, in order, they do excommunication in order to protect the church, but also for the benefit of the sinner. Deliver this man to Satan, verse 5. That's what they say. Though, of course, if he's an unbeliever, he already belongs to him. But Paul says to do it in the hopes that the awful consequences of the man's sinning, the destruction of the flesh, 
will spur him on to repentance so that he will be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul's concern here is to protect the congregation, but it's also to save the sinner, to, to see whether the Lord will move his heart to repentance. Now, let's be clear. This is open-heart surgery of the soul, right? We can exercise church discipline through private rebukes. It's not as though if you're chewing bubblegum in church tonight, or if we have a different view about tobacco use, then you're going to be excommunicated. He's not saying that if somebody says an unkind word to you at the fellowship meal, that you should rally your friends and say, well, don't even eat with such a one. On the contrary, we can confront each other in love about any number of things without actually exercising this strict and severe church discipline. Nevertheless, Paul is saying that someone who lives, who claims to be a Christian, but who lives in open rebellion, unrepentant sin against God's holy law, ought to be disciplined by the local church for his good. An egregious public sin deserves an equally public response. And Paul gives it in verse 3, and he instructs the local church to do it in verses 4 and 5. Now, in our friendly, let's-get-along culture, such an action might seem downright harsh. And ironically, you may even think that it's unchristian. It's unfashionable even to use the word sin at all, much less to accuse a particular person of sinning. Nevertheless, Paul gets right to the heart of the matter in verse 5. The local church should discipline this man for the sake of his soul. So sin is serious, and Paul encourages the Corinthian elders to love this man daringly and boldly by disciplining him severely. God's given a local church elders who, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.17, direct the affairs of the church. And they must fulfill the duty of their office. Paul's saying, excommunicate this man. And do it with the power of our Lord Jesus that's present with you when you meet together, verse 4. And notice that Paul wants the whole church to get involved. Verse 11, I'm writing writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Now, let's be careful. Let's be careful here. Paul's attitude is not, ew, yuck, you're a sinner. It is instead, I'm sorry, but I love you too much to pretend that things are the way that they were. I want to fellowship with you again, but I want to fellowship you, with you in sincerity and in truth, the language that Paul uses in verse 8, not and malice, and evil. And we've seen that his rationale here is that he wants the sinner to repent. We do people 
a great disservice when we ask them to believe in Jesus and don't call them to repent. If you remember in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus begins his ministry, what does he say? Repent and believe the good news. He doesn't say, hey, just trust in me and turn away from your sin when it's convenient to you. So we do people a great disservice when we don't follow the way of, of the Lord Jesus and call people to repentance. After all, those among us who say that they're Christians, but who live as unbelievers, may live as unbelievers simply because that's what they are. And so we need to take sometimes decisive action to wake them up from themselves. And it's not comfortable or pleasant, but it may be necessary for the sake of the individual. And of course, we've seen that it's not just the care of the individual. It's also the care of the whole church, as Paul makes clear in verses 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil from among you. We must care for God's people. We must care for God's people who give witness about Christ to the world. And it's far more destructive to the advance of the church's mission for the church to go wobbly on sin than it is for the culture to go from bad to worse. A local congregation that says that one can engage in same-sex activity and be a Christian does far greater disservice to the advance of, a go of the gospel than a local casino does. It does greater harm to the church, it pierces the hearts of those struggling with that sin, and it creates pressure on those who are faithful to a biblical view of marriage to walk away from what the Bible says and in, to embrace as right what the Bible says is wrong. Think about it. People don't look at the sewer that is our culture and blame the church. But they do look at the sewer of church culture and blame the church and rightly so. And so the leadership of a local church must act in a way that encourages the community to live in a decent, as, as, as Christian people. To live in a way that shows the world the glory of Jesus. And to do so, the church wants to exercise, at times, strict discipline. And do you know what? It is a source of great comfort to me. It is bracing to the soul to be in a church and to be part of a denomination that recognizes that the church must exercise strict discipline. Strict discipline says, brother, we love you too much to let you wander down that road of destruction without doing everything in our power to stop you. It's good to know that people here love me that much. They love me enough 
to exercise strict discipline. That's our second point. Now, in, by way of conclusion, let's turn to our third point. It's about our Lord Jesus. Look down at verse 7, the second half. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ is our sacrifice. Now to see why we have to do a quick tour of uh, Bible history, if you remember in the book of Exodus right there at the start of the Bible, God's people are oppressed, they're living in Egypt, and the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, was treating them terribly. They were slaves. And God had a plan to, to rescue his people, to get his people out of slavery through two men, Moses and Aaron. And Moses and Aaron tell God's people about his plan to rescue them. And they are delighted. The Lord has heard our groaning. Nevertheless, their joy turns to frustration and disappointment when Pharaoh doesn't let them go. And even worse, if you remember, he makes them work harder. It was terrible. Well, God sent nine plagues against Egypt. Frogs and gnats, flies and locusts, etc., etc. And occasionally, Pharaoh would plead with Moses for the plague to stop, and it would. But then Pharaoh would change his mind, and he wouldn't let God's people go. So God told Pharaoh about one last promised plague. One final plague that the Lord threatened. Every firstborn son in the land of Egypt will die from Pharaoh's own son down to the firstborn male cattle. Now, not every firstborn son would die because God gave his people a way to protect their firstborn sons. In Exodus chapter 12, we read that they were to take a year-old male lamb, a lamb without blemish. And they were specifically instructed to take lambs according to the number of people in the household, according to what each could eat. And they were to kill the lambs at twilight and slaughter them. And then they were to put some of the blood of the lamb on their doorposts and on the lintels of their houses. The blood shall be a sign for you, the Lord says in Exodus 12, 13, on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The message is clear. The lamb will die, but your son shall live. The lamb's blood for his blood. Life for life. And that night, the houses that did not have blood on their doorposts and lentils experienced the great grief and sorrow of seeing their firstborn sons dead after midnight. But those that received the blood of the lamb saw their firstborn sons sleeping safely. And God rescued his people that night. And he rescued the firstborn sons of Israel by the blood of a lamb. And to celebrate this rescue every year, lambs had to die. And the people gathered together and they ate unleavened bread, just like that first night. And God is very strict about the observance of the feast called the Passover. 
In Exodus chapter 12, verses 19 and 20, the Lord says, For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. So think about it. That first Passover, you put, you slaughter the lamb, you put the, the blood of the lamb on your doorposts and on the lintel to your house, and your son is safe. The following year, you're gobbling up leavened bread at the Passover, and you're excommunicated. You're kicked out of the congregation. Well, we've already seen how Paul uses leaven to explain the seriousness of sin. Just a little leaven leavens the whole lump. But we see here the real concern that motivates Paul. We are the Lord's people. We've been rescued by the precious blood of Jesus. We were slaves to sin, and he set us free. The Lamb of God died, and yet we live. Our Lord Jesus was crucified for you, Paul is saying, and you can't even bother to live by God's standards. They crucified the Lord of glory, but you exult, you rejoice in, in sordid sin. You must stop it. You must stop it for your sake, for the sake of the church, for the sake of that sinner, and for the sake of the Lord Jesus, the substitute for sin. So we may groan under the difficulty of urging each other on towards purity, but we should think for a moment on what the Lord endured to rescue us from the judgment to come. His sufferings were more than we can imagine. He bore the wrath of God in our place. And in the light of his sacrifice, we ought to be willing to feel uncomfortable and awkward for the sake of the purity of the church. In the face of such a great rescue, we should gladly sweep our souls clean of the leaven of malice and evil and welcome those appointed by God who are trying to help us. May God work in us by the power of the Holy Spirit to give us strength to do just that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, This passage is a sobering one, and it reminds us of the weight of our sin, and it calls us to clean our houses. Lord, I pray that we would do so not because um, we are scared of your judgment, but because we love you so much. And the rescue that you've given us. Grant us we pray Lord Jesus. To love you above all things. Even ourselves. 
would you work in us that which is pleasing to you for the sake of your great and awesome name. Amen. Amen.